and welcome to another 2020 hindsight edition of the Bunker Daily. I'm Jude Rogers. As the end of the year approaches, we're returning to the news stories that fundamentally shaped it. Few did as powerfully as the murder of George Floyd on the 25th of May 2020 and the protests that surged after it all across the world. They properly felt like axis-tilting events. Here was systemic racism being fought against, loudly, powerfully, and in the middle of a pandemic to boot. The protests were big in Britain, of course, with rallies up and down the country. But what did it feel like to be at the heart of them and to be seen instantly as one of the movement's main speakers? What was vital about these protests? And what difference have they made to discussions of racism and inequality so far? With me today to discuss all this and more is Iman Aiton, an actor and drama teacher from Peckham, South London, who found herself on front covers and news bulletins all over the world after she was given a megaphone at a BLM protest in London and decided to speak into it. Since then, she's spoken out about statues of slave traders and the tensions within Black Lives Matter UK. And in July, she founded the Black Reformist Movement. Um, can we begin by you telling us a little bit more about how you became part of your first Black Lives Matter protest? I understand, obviously, you'd been feeling very lonely and depressed watching the coverage of George Floyd's murder on TV. And you went out to buy some toothpaste and got involved in a protest happening at that moment in Peckham. Three days later, you were in a protest in central London, speaking in front of 20,000 people. How, how did that happen? So I'm still trying to work that out, in all honesty. <laughs> I found myself in a very unusual position. So like most people, I, I watched the video of George Floyd and was moved to the point where the emotions that I felt were overwhelming and it stayed with me more or less the whole whole day. So I ended up going to sleep and waking up the following day with that same sad, depressed feeling. So it was my mum, actually, that told me to go for a walk. So I said, all right, fine, I'll go for a walk and I'll multitask as we do and I'll go out and get toothpaste as I don't want to just walk around aimlessly during lockdown. So why not? So I went down to Peckham High Street and there are a horde of people walking towards me chanting Black Lives Matter. And in that moment, it made perfect sense to join that crowd of people. It was clearly a like-minded bunch of individuals that were marching Peckham High Street. So I felt it was only right that I joined them. So what was interesting is I met people that told me about the protests on the 31st of May. So I actually wasn't aware of the protests. I just went out to go and get toothpaste. And it was that information that led me to go down to Trafalgar Square um, a random lady, a very lovely lady, clearly, marched up to me, handed me a megaphone and said, here you go, this is for you, and then walked off. And so as I stood on the pillar, I, I literally had to make a quick decision as to whether I was going to jump down and give her back the megaphone or whether I was just going to use it. So I ended up using it. And at that point, I made a small speech. And then I saw someone that I met from Peckham. And at that point, I joined her. She made a speech, and that speech was very much about um, abolition. So it was very much focused on police, abolishing the police, condemning the police. And so I made my speech, which was very much focused on trying to not condemn all police and not put all police into this homogeneous box. 
So that was the first encounter that I had. And little did I know at that moment that it was ultimately a conversation between an abolitionist and a reformist. But it was only some time after that, once I realised <laughs> the dynamic within, within the movement. But at the time, it was just very much, all of us were galvanised, moved and very disturbed by what we had seen in regards to the murder of George Floyd. And we had come together to, to vent and express how we felt. So I think that was the start of the journey. And that was the golden thread that ran throughout the protests. You know, I knew your name pretty quickly um, because I think the press were looking for the spokespeople of this movement in, you know, quote marks, because obviously it's not just a movement that happens in one place. It's something that was quite organic in terms of the way the protests rolled out across the country. You know, I live in the Welsh borders between Wales and England, we had protests in Hereford, a small market town near me, which had 800 people in it. You know, this is a, a town that is largely white and, and has a very, sto- you know, long running, and has a Tory MP who's, um, you know, been there a very long time. It's not the kind of place you'd expect a protest like that, which is really, really interesting. But, you know, um, this is something that was nationwide. But you're, you were somebody quoted in the press. You were somebody who was talked about as a leader, a spokesperson. What was that like so soon into your involvement? You know, obviously you were happy to talk, but was there pressure put on you at that point? To be honest with you, it happens so quickly. You just find yourself in it and you actually don't have time to think. And that sounds so bizarre, but you literally just don't have time to think. I literally went from just being a normal black girl from Peckham that went to attend a protest, realised that there were no leaders and found myself with a megaphone. And then I just thought, okay, well, this is the start. And so I just almost was kind of swept up in a, in a bit of a whirlwind. So as it happened, it was almost quite surreal. Um, but at the same time, I was in a very militant mindset. So when it um, came to having conversations or speaking to the press, it wasn't an issue because I was filled with <laughs> nothing but passion. So um, yeah. at the time it, it felt quite normal. It's only obviously now things have calmed down when I, I look back and obviously in hindsight, it's quite crazy, but <laughs> in the time I actually felt quite normal <laughs> to be honest with you. And obviously people will, you know, look for people to explain what's happening when there's something like this in the news agenda and obviously in the middle of the pandemic, you know, and, and given what was going on elsewhere, in the world, it was a, a a time that was very alive to what was going on. Um, it did seem from it did seem from the perspective of a journalist speaking as myself that um, there were a lot of people from outside the black community supporting the sentiments behind the protests, which felt it was even going through. Um, it was travelling across communities where you might not have expected that amount of protest before. Did you feel that? And if so, did that surprise you? Oh, yes, that was the best part about it. Like, And that's just me being completely and brutally honest about it. I think black people have been marching the streets, or not I think. I know black people have been marching the streets for decades. But the real turning point was to see our fellow white people, our fellow Asians, our fellow whoever every color you could think of was marching the streets for black people and I think that was the thing that moved me the most um I know that black people feel um feel extremely upset about how they are treated within society that is information that we are all very much privy to um but to see white people stand up and be just as outraged was just 
it just moved me. It, it almost makes me speechless. It was surreal. And I've never seen that before. And um, did I expect it? Yes, I did. Purely because I saw it in America. And I thought that there is no way that people will not be moved by this. Irrespective of your colour, your politics, there is no way. Everyone has a heart. I, I like to believe I'm somewhat of an optimist. So everyone is empathetic to an extent. And I think that there is no way that the nation is not going to be touched by this. So it didn't surprise me. However, it was still a, a sight to behold. It was beautiful. What else was good about the protests from your experience being in the middle of them? The biggest thing for me was building the awareness that was the fundamental factor for me that really kind of ensured that we were making um, progress because the protests were the thing that kind of really helped ensure that everyone was very much focused on black inequality and other inequalities and disparities throughout society so I think that that for me was the biggest highlight was the momentum and the amount of awareness that was built due to the protests. Looking back now, you know, it's now six months as we're talking from when the protests um, happened. What do you think they achieved? I think the fundamental thing for me personally is now having the conversation about institutionalised racism, also known as systemic racism, which they refer to um, in the USA. And I think that's a conversation that everyone is, or not everyone, a lot of people are petrified about having it's a very uncomfortable conversation scares a lot of people including black and so it's a conversation that hasn't been had despite the fact that the term was first coined in 1967 in america by stokely carmichael and then later expanded upon by sir william mcpherson in 1999 regarding the, the Stephen Lawrence case. So despite the fact that it's been many years that we've been aware of this term, we don't like to talk about it. And I think that this movement has given us license to have that very awkward but necessary conversation. Obviously, there's been other conversations that began over the summer as well. Um, you, know, you advocated statues of slave owners and traders being removed and being placed in museums rather than destroyed. Tell us more about that in that moment. Winston Churchill, in terms of how I feel about him as a black woman, it's not the same as how maybe a white man from Britain may feel or a white woman may feel. So I always brought it back to the fact that we need to address the fact that we're not equal in this society and we need to try to be a bit more equal and fair and understanding of the different cohorts within society. So if we have Winston Churchill, who offends many people within the black community, Having the conversation about him being removed from Parliament Square and put into a museum, I think is a reasonable conversation. Um, and that's why I felt comfortable enough to, to have that conversation. I didn't believe that he should be destroyed because that would just be ridiculous. I think that he's done some great things and it's only fair that people are able to continue to admire him. But I think that we also have to be conscious of the fact that for black people, he, he wasn't a saint and he wasn't necessarily a good man. So to be fair, moving him, him into a museum, I thought would be a good option to ensure that everyone was happy. 
So that was an interesting conversation. I, I found myself talking about statues um, for a brief moment, as opposed to the real things that we were out to talk about, which is genuine inequalities within the black community. So in that moment, due to the fact that there was vandalism uh, throughout the protests by many different types of people, black and white, um, a lot of people were outraged. And so uh, someone that had been seen <laughs> quite a lot in the media, I found myself in the middle of that, that conversation. And so for me as a black woman, I do not appreciate his values in regards to black people. Um, he's made quite derogatory statements in the past in regards to the black community. So for me, he is not the pillar of good. Um, I do not, um, he, he's not my kind of, he's not the image that I would say <laughs> represents the epitome of good and, and greatness. Whereas a lot of people within the UK believe that because he's done some wonderful things. So ultimately it's just about being able to understand that different people have completely different perspectives and ultimately what is good and who is good is subjective. There was this idea almost that Middle Britain, so to speak, was um, quite open to the idea of interrogating our country's past in a way that um, I wonder that, you know, living through this particular year when we've had moments to pause and reflect and think about you know, who we are as a country might have led into that um, in some some small way. You know, obviously there was a lot of support, but did you worry that some of the support around or outside the protest felt um, uh, performative, really? Um, you know, people paying lip service, um, but not changing what they did. Yes, I do think that there was a lot of virtue signalling. I think that's to be expected. I think a lot of people do want to do something or show that they are genuinely supporting the movement and the cause and the fight for black equality within the UK and the USA. So I think it's, I think it's to be expected. However, it becomes an issue if it is not genuine and it is not sustained. If it's not something that you continue with, then it's more or less futile if you just spend one year putting up or a few months within the year putting up uh, I don't know having black people on the cover or having a few black models or whatever it is that that makes you feel comfortable showing your support if if that's only done for a few months then I think it is almost mm. an insult so there has been a lot of virtue signaling I think that if it continues and um, it is maintained and it it is genuine, then it's not a problem. But if it isn't genuine and it isn't maintained, then it's futile. It seemed that there were a lot of conversations opening up on social media in a good way as well, you know, around uh, publishing, I noticed. Um, you know, the incredible, within publishing, you have, you know, so many people in positions of power who are white and middle class or, or kind of divorced from the realities of the need for people to read literature that are by people who represent themselves or, you know, even people to read literature by people who are different to them, to educate themselves in, you know, different ways of ways of life. And there's been lots of very interesting discussions um, around there. And um, obviously social media in many ways has been a force for good 
facilitating those discussions. But obviously then you had in the summer the All Lives Matter hashtag, you know, which it's obviously an attempt to devalue the Black Lives Matter movement as well. You know, how did you feel when that hashtag became the story, really? To be honest with you, it didn't surprise me because for me, I am very much aware of the fact that within society, the litmus test for racism is overt racism. So as long as you're not calling someone the N-word or openly being um, abusive to black people, then you are not a racist. Whereas the reality is, I don't think we have been taught about racism in the correct way. And so in regards to racism, there are many different types, main three types, overt racism, covert racism, and institutionalized racism. There are many different cohorts of people that fit into that bracket. And ultimately it comes down to covert racism, not necessarily being the most pertinent conversation despite the fact that it causes the most damage. So covert racism would be an example of all Black Lives Matter, where a racially biased decision is ultimately hidden or rationalised with an explanation that is acceptable or deemed acceptable by society. That is covert racism. And so the statement, all Black Lives Matter, is deemed as acceptable by society. However, it is obviously, like I said, hidden and rationalised but it is shrouded with racial prejudice and bias. And so instead of us focusing on overt racism, we now, as a society, need to focus on covert racism and institutionalised racism. So it didn't surprise me because that's society for you. It seems that it's been a very big year in terms of symbolism um, running through through society as well and people getting used to reading stories about taking the knee, for example, which has become a bigger story again in the last few weeks. Um, you know, Millwall fans booing the taking of the knee and then the club ban- then the club banning their players from doing it, replacing it with a linked arms gesture and an equality banner. Anthony Joshua, who spoke in Black Lives Matter protests in Watford, didn't take the knee before he defended his world heavyweight title this weekend, although he is setting up an initiative to support black British culture. I was interested to know how you feel about taking the knee and what is happening here with the attitudes towards that gesture. What is happening now is when we are seeing the booing and and, and all of these different types of things in response to people taking the knee, people will naturally say that it is uh, free speech and it is them objecting to... Black Lives Matter UK, whereas, like I said, they're two separate entities. So the symbolism of taking the knee is very much anti-racism and all about equality. No more, no less. But what's happened is we are now associating that particular symbolism with an organisation that would like to abolish capitalism and police and etc. So I understand why there are people that are black or within the black community or or Asian or et cetera, that may not feel comfortable taking the knee at this point. And I think that's purely due to the fact that that symbol is now very much associated with the political right within the movement. Like I said, AKA Black Lives Matter UK, which is a shame because like I said, there's people like me, there's other people <laughs> within this movement, but now such a beautiful gesture has been discredited. Oh. It's, used to discredit the movement um, and that's due to the political right within the movement and that's just one entity that's just one organization that didn't actually organize the protests 
<laughs> so yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's a shame. I have to get used to it because it's also uh, given license for overt racism and covert racism. Um, and I think that's the most heartbreaking thing. So now we're unable to discern whether booing is covert racism or whether it is a legitimate free speech and objection to BLM UK. Uh, so that's what's, for me, the most heartbreaking thing about it, that people are now using it um, in dis- disingenuous ways, basically. I should note before we go that it, it has been an incredible year in other ways for prominent black British figureheads. Um, you know, looking at, back at the year and things that have happened, Marcus Rashford's actions and how they've changed the lives of the most vulnerable people in society. Uh, Michaela, Michaela Cole revolutionising TV drama and debates about sexual consent with, you know, the best show in my mind of the year. Um, the Oscar-winning Steve McQueen bringing stories of Black Britain to primetime Sunday night 9pm TV. Bernadine Evaristo, you know, um, after her Booker Prize win late last year, has become one of, the, of Britain's most beloved writers, um, you know, throughout the whole of Britain, it seems, this year. I wanted to, you know, it's, it's, it, there's lots to celebrate, obviously. Um, how is it that black culture is such a powerful engine in British arts, culture and sport, yet black people still have to fight for a voice in politics, I was wondering? So that's, it's always been mind-boggling for me and I've I spent a lot of time thinking about it for years and then I realised, hence why I feel so comfortable uh, using the platform that I have to talk about covert racism. So I think within society, and this is just my opinion, take it or leave it, but <laughs> the reality is there are proportions of people that are overtly racist. There are proportions of people that are covertly racist. There are proportions of people that do not identify with being overtly racist, nor do they identify with being covertly racist. In actual fact, they probably call themselves a a white ally, when in actual fact, they subconsciously vacillate between covert racism and white allyship. And then we have another proportion within society that are genuine white allies. And so my point that I'm trying to make is that I personally think the majority of people that adopt black culture fall into the category of the ambivalent. So that's that category, like I said, which is They do not identify with being overtly racist. They have friends, they have cousins that are black. They love black people. They go to protests. They they support black communities. They do whatever they can to help. So they do not believe that they are racist. They don't believe that they're covertly racist. When in actual fact, because racism is so embedded within society, it happens subconsciously. And so subconsciously, these people vacillate between covert racism and overt racism. And I think it's that cohort of people that are adopting black culture, loving black music, loving black poetry and books and whatever else. So I think that it's not the people that think they're racist. I don't think that they believe that they're racist. And that comes down to the fact that as a society, like I said, the litmus test for racism is overt racism. It isn't covert racism. Whereas I personally think the litmus test should be covert racism because that is what is most prevalent within society. And it is those people that enjoy black music and they don't believe they're racist. That is why we are in this position, I personally think. You know, as somebody who advocates re- reform so powerfully over revolution, you know, what do you want to see happening next year, say, and what, what would you ideally, COVID-19 aside, like to do? In an ideal world, I want 
us to have the most awkward conversations. We're now starting it, um, but the most awkward conversation has always been institutionalised racism. Like I said, we've, as a society, grasped the notion of overt racism. We've even started to grasp covert racism, but we are still very much in denial about systemic racism. So for me personally, moving forward, I would give everything to see society have those uncomfortable conversations. Um, if every institution could have that conversation, be it open to having that conversation. I mean, we saw it recently with, I think it was, uh, forgive me, I can't remember, but it was a very senior doctor within the NHS that spoke about differential attainment within the NHS and, and more or less said, and spoke about uh, systemic racism. So I think we're now having that conversation, but I think people just need to own it, own it, be proud and loud, because that's how we move forward, basically. So if we can start to have those even more awkward conversations, I think that's when we start to see long-term sustainable change. Good to think all this started for you six, seven months ago, not even seven months ago, you know, um, no, it's been it's been it's been quite the year, and it's been fantastic to talk to you. Best of luck with everything from here on in, and um, we'll be watching out to see what comes next. Thanks so much for joining us in the bunker today. Oh, absolute pleasure! Thank you so much, Jude. This has made my day. So thank you so much, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Iman. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, there's a new bunker daily every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, plus the brand new panel show on Tuesdays. So please do subscribe. And if you're listening on Thursday, the 17th of December, our Christmas live Zoom for Patreon backers is tonight at 8pm. Get the crackers out. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to support us and find out how to see it. You can sign up right up to the start time of 8pm. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.